Hello and welcome to our special seven questions edition of How to Win a Campaign. I'm Martin Diego Garcia, and you can find us at CMPWRKSHP on Twitter or at the Campaign Workshop on Instagram. In this series, we're talking with some of our favorite authors, content creators, and influencers. And you can find our seven questions that inspired this conversation at thecampaignworkshop.com or in the show notes. Today, we are excited to welcome David Pepper to the podcast. David is a lawyer, a writer, a political activist, former elected official, and adjunct professor. He served as the chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party from 2015 through the end of last year. David was born and raised in Cincinnati and served on the Cincinnati City Council and Hamilton County Commission before being elected the chair of the Ohio Democratic Party in 2014. As an attorney, he's engaged in extensive litigation regarding important issues in Ohio, including voter suppression and unjust election laws. David has also published four novels that bridge real-world politics and fiction, and just released A Simple Choice, which is a thriller that contains striking parallels to American politics. David continues to advocate for the people of Ohio while simultaneously writing and teaching law at the University of Cincinnati College of Law. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be with you today. You have quite a fascinating bio that we just read off there, and I'm excited to jump in to hear more about it. And and we really start off all of these seven questions with asking folks to talk a little bit about their background and sort of how they got to where they are today. When I watch the movie Forrest Gump, I'm sort of reminded my my little path because there's sort of these random journeys that all kind of add up. So I grew up in Ohio. I actually spent a lot of years of my childhood overseas. My dad worked at Procter & Gamble, so I lived in Belgium and Rome. So I had this interesting international upbringing. After college, I actually worked in Russia for three years. And one of the random factoids about my time there was I was in St. Petersburg when Vladimir Putin was the vice mayor. And he was literally assigned to be the liaison to my project. So I met him way back when, before he became so infamous. And then I went to law school, came back to Cincinnati. My city was sort of falling apart on the international stage. We had a really bad moment. So I decided to run for city council, got elected, county commission. And that brought me into politics. And I've been involved ever since. I did a lot of journalism in college and, and before. So I also always was a writer. And I think that's what led me to decide also before I ever became chair of the party. But after I was running on the side, I started writing these novels and ultimately some nonfiction as well. So it's been definitely an interesting journey. And 50 years later, I'm back in Ohio and doing a combination of advocacy, writing, a lot of public speaking and teaching. And I'm a father of two young boys and a husband. So that keeps me obviously pretty busy as well. So it's been an interesting journey. In one sense, you look at it and think that where do those paths go? The Russia stuff, then I'm back in Cincinnati at the very local level. I think they all sort of add up to just an interesting perspective on the world that I try and capture in different ways. Absolutely, which we're definitely going to dive into. But it also goes to show, I think we often get, as people who train candidates to run for office, I have to be in a certain field in order to run for office. And you don't really, right? As, as somebody who is now a writer and who's also a professor and teacher, there are different ways that and different perspectives you can bring to elected office, regardless of the sort of background and career you had. Absolutely. It was funny. I was working overseas in Russia. I went to law school and ran for office at 29 for city council. And I, my experience in Russia was actually very helpful as I ran and then got on city council because all I was doing when I was in Russia was trying to find best practices of how American cities were well run. So the exercise of doing it elsewhere was actually very similar. 
that's why I say the experiences may feel different, but if you think about what you've done in life certain ways, you never know how they lend themselves to the next thing you're doing. And that's always been the case for me. Absolutely. Can you talk to us a little bit about the beginning of your writing career and how you transitioned from journalism to writing books? I was actually the managing editor of my college newspaper. I spent all my years doing summer jobs and then in person on campus journalism. So I always was a writer more than just a, a lawyer who was writing. But it was around 2011 and 12 that I got so frustrated with the lack of awareness over what a poison that gerrymandering is. And I had run for an office in 2010. If I had won, we could have stopped gerrymandering in Ohio. I then helped uh, campaign for an effort to try and change the Ohio Constitution to end gerrymandering. It lost badly, and even when Obama won. And my conclusion from all that was that no one knows anything about this really dominant problem in our politics that Ohio is living with worse than almost any other state. And that's where I got this odd idea. You know what? I'm going to write a novel about how bad gerrymandering is, which, by the way, is the worst idea for a novel ever, which I soon discovered. So I started to add like a Russian oligarch based upon my time in Russia a plot where people die, this secret strategy, but all of it was to give life to how bad gerrymandering actually is and what a weakness it is in our American political system. And over several years, I had never written a novel before, so I had to kind of self-teach. I got a lot of critiques. But in the end, my book came out. It actually did quite well, less because of the gerrymandering part and more because I had a Russian oligarch rigging an American election. And I did it before... The reality 16 came to light. So the book took off in a viral way after 16 because people were saying, how in the heck did this guy write a book about Russia and a Russian oligarch rigging an American election? So it was this very interesting entree, and it's taken off ever since. Again, I do think it explores gerrymandering in a way that's helpful, but it was the Russia connection that turned the book into, for a moment at least, a viral sensation that's led to all the book writing I've done since. I bet. I bet. Can you talk to us a little bit about what your process looks like? So obviously that when you had this concept around gerrymandering and creating yeah. a book around it, how has that worked for the other books? It's always been the same. I have, and normally it's sort of an aha moment like that one was, and I just start writing something. And it's normally like a concept. And from the concept, I then create characters, I create the plot line and I hope it works. So the first one was, I'm going to expose the problem of gerrymandering. How can I do that? It took me several years to learn the novel writing process to make it a good book. Because again, a concept itself is not a good book. A good novel is interesting characters, a good plot, that the page turns, setting, you name it, well-written, and not politically preachy, which if you start out a book about gerrymandering, a risk is this is going to come across as a political preach session as opposed to a good book. So I had to learn all that. But my second book, it's called The Wingman. I won't go through great detail, but The Wingman was inspired by one of the many awful debates in the 2016 Republican primary. And I was sitting there watching the debate when Chris Christie just throttled Marco Rubio, if you remember that debate. And I thought to myself, what if a candidate is in a primary just to destroy another candidate? That's what led to The Wingman. That book starts out on a debate stage in New Hampshire. That book turns out to also, like the first book, have a lot of similarities to ultimately things that have happened in real politics. My third book was 
What if someone could heist and hack into the voter file of both the DNC and the RNC? What damage could they do? That's the concept Then comes the book. So there are all these books start with that. And then I say, okay, I got a concept. Let me go run and come up with some characters and some good stories. So that's not how I do it. I don't outline. I start writing and I think through the plot and the characters as I write. I get that first draft down and then I do a ton of editing to prune it and shorten it and make it tight. But that's the basics of how I write these books. How fascinating. And I'm sure as our listeners who are tuned into this podcast... (laughs) at the sort of center of theatrics and what is actually happening in our political system would find these really interesting. But I got to ask, do you have a favorite one that you've written so far and why so? I think my books get better written every time. Like the new one, which we'll talk about, A Simple Choice, I think is the best written of my books. I just finished a manuscript that I like a lot. But in a way, that first book is always going to be the most authentic because it's a story that I think is a good story, but it's also about a guy learning how to write. And in a way, like, and not that every author should do this, but I do, since I started in this very random way. I do not know the publishing industry. I got to know it slowly, painfully. So the first book is my own journey about how to write. If you go on Amazon, look at the reviews, it actually still gets the highest average ranking, even though it was the least professionally done. So I think there's an authenticity to that book. And then the random weird jibing with what actually happened that maybe it'll in one way always be that original favorite. I think my other books as I go have gotten better in terms of the writing process and all that. But there's an authenticity to the first book that I still have people say, oh, I I like all your books. But that first book really is still the one that I thought was my favorite. So and as a writer, you kind of always remember that first book, because one of my questions is, why was I in Russia in the 90s? I still don't really remember why I decided to write this book, but one day I started to write it, and I had no idea what I was going to do with it. I didn't know really one agent. I knew nothing, but I just had this story I wanted to write. And in a way, that's what every writer, I think, when they start, that's what they're doing. So in some ways, that'll always be my favorite book. Yes, it was more of a calling. It really was. I have to get this out of my body. I had friends who were writers. and You need an agent. So I started sending the manuscript to agent. It would get ripped to shreds. Like one agent wrote me the nastiest email that would have made anyone quit. And I was like, well, I'll just keep writing. Like, I don't care. Not to brag, but in November of 16, the Wall Street Journal wrote an article about this book saying it was the sleeper for political thriller of the year. A year later, Political Magazine wrote a whole article saying the thriller that predicted the Russia scandal, which got me on Judy Woodruff. And of course, occasionally I would write that agent back and say, hey, I don't know if you saw this review, but the book that you said was hopeless has turned out to be pretty good. So like you said, it was more of a calling. I just kept writing it through thick and thin over years and years of work. Yeah, sometimes it feels good to be like, just FYI, (laughs) here we are. I did say to him, although it was too brutal... Some of his criticism actually really was insightful and helpful. It was a little bit passive aggressive, but I said, look at what happened. I'm so excited. And your criticism did help me make it a better book. So thank you for reading it, which is actually true. I mean, he did do me a favor by by reading it and providing some useful criticism veiled in a massive boxing glove hit to the jaw. But here we are on a new book. Congrats on the new book, by the way. Thank you. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what our listeners would gain if they went ahead and started reading it? A simple choice. Yeah, I had the election rigging space covered. And since Donald Trump decided to make it such a hot topic, I thought it's time to not go there. 
So this is a book that we'll talk about in detail, but the simple concept is the following, if you hear me about the other concepts. What would you do if you had a loved one who was suffering from a terminal disease and someone came along and offered you the chance to guarantee that they would be cured? What trade would you make? What would you be willing to do that wasn't ethical, that wasn't moral? If you knew that it would save your wife or husband's life or your child's life, and then think to yourself, what would America's most powerful politicians do? And that's essentially the book. And that is what the simple choice is. Faced with that decision, as many of the book's characters are faced with, it's a form of corruption, but with a very positive, enticing offer. We will save your ailing spouse's life. That question is at the heart of the book. And without giving much away, it turns out, despite the nice title, it's not a simple choice. It may feel simple, but it is fraught with consequences. And one of the parts about the book that I like is, most of the people who face this choice have led a very high-integrity life in politics or in other aspects of life. So for them, it does eat at them that they're doing something that feels personally great, but is also fraught with, are they giving up an integrity they spent their life fighting for, and is this going to ruin them in other ways, etc.? So that's the concept, and like every other book, with that concept in mind, if people listening know about CRISPR technology, this breakthrough cancer gene therapy, it's a lot of it is based on that, which is happening quickly, but they're also, if not surrounded by the right ethical procedures, could also have consequences downstream. So that's really the heart of this book. Wrapped in politics, though. I was going to say, right back to your core of it's wrapped in politics. And I would imagine whether you feel like you're in a position of political power or not, we all have those choices that we come across in our life's journeys that we feel should be simple but end up being much more complicated than they really are. Do you see any parallels of this plot line in today's American political landscape? It's a story about corruption and how you think about it. And I don't think that we're seeing that, although... There's currently a whole lot of discussion about dealing with disease, and we saw a little bit. My books always seem to be a little bit ahead, and then time catches up to them. We did see during COVID, we saw some people in politics giving their siblings or relatives a little bit of a head start on vaccines. So the idea that people are unwilling to help out someone they care about in a medical crisis my book was already at the publisher being edited when this happened, but I thought, oh my gosh, there we go again. People helped someone out when it came to getting them a head start. And that happened financially too. We saw that. So it's a little bit of a different take on corruption. If there's a massive personal benefit involved in your public service, are you willing to grab at it? And I do think we see, again, whether it's stocks or whether it's investments or in some cases, a shortcut to a vaccine or treatment others don't get, you do see this. By the way, I've got a lot of readers who've read my book and said, oh, I would absolutely do what your book is having these people do. In fact, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. So it's pushing the envelope a little bit about what is corruption and what is a personal benefit that maybe people think is okay or others have said, no, you just, you're in public office. You have no right whatsoever to get yourself ahead of anybody else. So it's trying to take a different take on the worry that people in politics take advantage of opportunities that they really shouldn't and that other people don't get to. And I get this a lot so far, which is good. I hope readers feel challenged by the simple choice that's posed in the book. 
Absolutely. If David has intrigued your interest like he has mine, A Simple Choice is the name of that book. But let's transition into some of the other things that you spend your time doing or have spent your time doing. Talk to me a little bit about what made you decide to run for office in Cincinnati. I know you sort of touched on it when you came back when you were 29, but give us a little bit more insight there. Maybe the greatest award I ever won. I was my first year at law school. And I was at Yale Law School, so this is sort of a, a group of people who've all gone on to great things, like Stacey Abrams was a classmate. I joke that she clearly took classes I must have skipped out on. Cory Booker was a year above me, but despite all that incredibly impressive people around me, I was the one named most likely to be president of the Cincinnati Board of Tourism because all I did in law school was apparently annoy people about my hometown of Cincinnati. A very Ohio proud guy. And I am annoying about Cincinnati. And I think that was a way to get me to stop bragging so much about it. So when I moved home and clerked for a federal circuit court, and I saw that we were haunted by horrible race relations, terrible police community relations, numerous police shootings of black men, three or four in a year over three years that ultimately led to riots on our streets. The guy who'd been kind of like naively bragging about how great Cincinnati was, was faced with the reality that, hey, we got problems. Almost a generation before the problems that had been exposed in other cities, we faced them. Having been so proud of my city, after that clerkship ended, I literally thought, it doesn't count for much to be bragging about this community if when it's struggling, you don't step up. It was about helping the community that I had been proud of. I wasn't very partisan or political then, honestly. I'd never done anything political. I couldn't do it as a clerk. So out of the blue, I got to know a few people after the clerkship. I did not have, you know, years of, of doing. I was young, so you would expect me to have done it for decades. But that's why I ran for City Hall was this city was not doing well. And I thought in a very naive 29-year-old way, I can help do better. I didn't do anything that your typical campaign does. I had no polling. I had yard signs everywhere, and most people now tell you yard signs don't matter. I had a Just Add Pepper yard sign everywhere, okay? My ads were not written with any sort of deep methodology to them, but they had Just Add Pepper all over them, and they talked about the city falling apart while city council bickered. The last part of the ad was a pepper shaker across the screen with pepper falling out, and the words Just Add Pepper were spelled out by the falling pepper, on election day, every poll I went to, I'd say, I'm David Pepper. And everyone would say back to me, just add Pepper. And they would shake their hand like happens in the end. And for the first time ever, a newcomer finished first for city council. We have nine seats all at large, 20 to 30 people run. I finished first. By the way, I only wanted to finish top nine. That's how you win. And so I had this very sort of unique start. And I think in hindsight, it's kind of like that first book. I think it was an authentic campaign because I didn't know very much. I didn't just knock on Democratic doors. I knocked on every door. I didn't care. My list was not some hyper-targeted list. I'm probably, by the way, giving some people you work with a heart attack right now. It was not some hyper-targeted list. It was a list of who voted. And I didn't go one door and then skip two. I'd go every single door. And then I would ask him for a yard sign, and then they would add their just add pepper yard signs everywhere. And somehow, by the end, I was the guy who represented something different and new, and I finished first, and that's I've been involved ever since. But it was really about a community that was struggling that I had grown up so proud of that just really wasn't doing well. That's why I ran. It was very simple. 
And I think you hit the nail on the head. It is that piece of authenticity and that piece of tapping into something that you genuinely felt. You knew that your community members and sort of neighbors and friends were like also were genuinely feeling. And you were able to communicate to them in that way. And I think that is exactly what regardless of how you get there, right? Right. <laughs> what we try to teach our candidates to do. You can't go in and make up a persona, but you have yeah. to be authentically yourself and genuinely want to do it for good reasons. Right. And what's funny is I look back, I was an endorsed Democrat, and the council was majority Democrat. The mayor was Democrat. My ads ripped on everybody. I've been friends with them since, but they must have think, who is this guy? Why is he running ads about how bad things are when I'm the sitting mayor and I endorsed him or I'm the city council member? So... I just literally had zero political sense, but it worked because of that. It was just like a straight up, and I don't want to get carried away here, but it was a straight up, I'm running to help a city that's struggling, and I'm just going to say what I think, and then I'm going to throw a catchy slogan on the end so you remember my name, in a race that's only about name ID. There was no party on the ballot. It's like you're looking at a list of 30 names. And the name Pepper would stick out because you heard this just that Pepper slogan and boom, there there I end up winning. But it was a very sort of authentic, I wasn't mean, but I just was dismissive of a terrible leadership and all that, which must have really made these people angry who were actually trying to help me. To their credit, they never said anything. They just sort of let me do it and there I did it and I ended up winning. You obviously struck a chord and then as we often teach, right, creativity is super helpful when you're running in a crowded field. Right. So you've been a writer, you've been an elected official, you've been an attorney, right, an activist. Talk to me a little bit about how all of these different perspectives have impacted your view on advocacy, political strategy, how you engage now. I can only give one example because there's so many ways that these things have meshed together. And I'll just give one example. When I first wrote my first book, I sent it to a well-known author who's a friend. And he said to me, David, all your book is about is this plot about gerrymandering. You've spent no time on the characters. And he said to me, people will, if they don't know the character, they won't read any plot about that character. If they care about the character, they'll pretty much read any plot about that character. I rewrote the book with that in mind, but that is politics. There's a guy in Cincinnati, you may have heard of him, he's the mayor now, Avtab Purval. The reason he's done so well is his story is compelling and he tells it well. He is a character with a compelling story. And in the end, that's what matters in a political campaign. Who's running and why should I care about them? And this is what I would tell any candidate. Avtab, before he was mayor, ran for an office in Cincinnati that no one had cared about, especially Democrats for a century, the clerk of courts. How dry does that sound? But Avtab would stand up and explain his story and his family coming to Ohio and his name meaning sunshine. And within three minutes, people would love this candidate. And so when he shocked the world and won a clerk of court seat, he had a bigger crowd at his swearing in than all the other big offices that most people focus on. Because it's about the character and not about necessarily the plot or the office. And so I think there's a really important story there where that lesson for writing about the character tells you about how you win a campaign. It's about the person running. Obama did the same thing. If they have a story that captures you, you will stand with them through thick or thin, whether it's an office you never cared about before. But once they're done running and you care about them, you want them to win, you see the good they can do. And of course, then Avtab 
crush it in the mayor's race only a few years later. So I think that's one of the most important take-homes. But the other one I'd say also related, and I wrote a nonfiction book recently, and I think it's done well because of this. Storytelling is key. A good story, again, the character anchors that story, but you've got to capture the messaging of your campaign or your time in office within stories that people can understand because stories are what capture emotion. And they make people feel something about a moment or an issue or a a place that I think if you're too much driven by other things, you just lose the emotion because you haven't told a story. So that's the other thing about whether you're writing a book or whether you're thinking about a campaign or whether you're trying to tell a town, vote for me. I think if you wrap it in stories, you connect a voter's gut far more than just what Democrats often get caught with, which is sort of trying to outsmart or outlogic everybody. So I think there's a piece of storytelling that if done well is a really part of effective politics. Absolutely. You have me smiling over here because that is the piece that I teach in our trainings. You have just hit every learning point right on the head. So I appreciate it. So talk to me also about you've spent a good bit of time litigating on issues around just election laws and voter suppression. How has your perspective sort of impacted the work you've been doing there? I think it's a healthy thing that I don't have a expiration date on being outraged because I can never get used to how bad it is uh, the way that so many voters are being treated and in litigating it up close and not only litigating but seeing the statements of those who are suppressing the vote and knowing what lies they are I never lose the sense of how wrong it is and I hope others are the same way because When I saw the Secretary of State of Ohio lie about he had no ability to have more than one drop box per county, I know the law. I know what a lie it is. I see him say it every day, and the media credits it, and it's false. And so I sued, and I proved him wrong in Republican and Democratic courtrooms, and he still lies about it now. So I think we can never get used to how egregious the suppression is. And my students in my election law class are probably like, wow, this guy comes across unlike other professors. Like, it's not just some academic treatment. I made them take a literacy test two weeks ago from Alabama in the 60s to show them that not a single one of them would have passed it. And none of them ever has. I walk through the history of voter suppression where, do you know that in the late 1800s, there were more registered black voters in Louisiana than registered white voters? And that's why you had in many Southern state houses, more black state representatives than white, or you had Supreme Court justices who were black. And within 20 years, the 100-something thousand black registered voters in Louisiana were down to 700. They got rid of them through literacy tests and violence and other things, and that there wasn't one black elected official left in those states by the early 1900s. I mean, we have to continue to remember that democracy can be subverted. It has been in this country in brutal ways. And so when you see the suppression now, see the mirror that that is what they did before and it worked and keep fighting. I'm informed by the litigation I've been involved with. I've seen the lives right in front of all of Ohio. They are repeated. And I also know the history enough to know that what did they do when there were new black voters in the South following Civil War? They said they were voting fraudulently, which they weren't, and they engaged in intimidation, ultimately violence, to keep them from voting. 
And because of the myth of voter fraud, they came up with all these ways to keep them from voting. It's the same story. And the reason they want to ban and censor history is because they don't want people to see that the tactics today are almost exactly the same as the tactics that led to almost a century of Jim Crow. So somehow I have an ability to get myself worked up every single time, which I hope is a good thing, because I'll never, in my own mind, allow the normalization of, of just raw voter suppression tactics that are in the end about undermining a diverse democracy, which this country is entitled to have. Absolutely. Keep that energy. You got me riled up. A couple last questions here for you. Do you have a particular favorite book or podcast that has been inspiring to you or, or sort of provoking for you in the work that you're doing that you want to share with our listeners? I can't say I have one. I mean, I really go back and forth. You know, I go through the nonfiction to get the facts. I go through the fiction to get the feeling of it. A number of the books like Beloved on the um, banned books list are the ones I get the most out of because they bring to me the emotion of times that a nonfiction book, although important, doesn't get you. So I'm always going back and forth. But right now, I'd say that that the books that tell the story of the past are so important. They are a reminder of how, at the wrong moment, with the wrong response, democracy can be subverted. And they're also a reminder, you know, I recently read the John Lewis biography by, um, I'm blanking on his name right now, but the fight for democracy in this country has always been determined not by the fact that there are always those fighting against democracy. That's a given. It's always been our history. There's always been people. The Koch brothers of today or Mitch McConnell were the segregationists of 40 years ago, were the white supremacists of the 1880s. There's always been people trying to hold back a diverse democracy. That's never been the outcome determination. The outcome is determined by the fight, the strength of the fight of those fighting for democracy. And when you read, you know, John Lewis, when you read the late 1800s and when they started settling for what the South was doing as opposed to what Ulysses Grant did to fight back, you see that very clearly. So I'm right now really caught up in understanding that history and trying to share the lessons of that history of that history as much as I can. So whether it's the biography of Ulysses Grant, whether it's John Lewis, whether it's you know, some famous older history books about the Reconstruction, as opposed to those who want to ban those things, I am like intense about reading through all of them because that really instructs us about the fight we have to wage today. You know, I go back through the quotes of RFK or John Lewis. They're literally talking to us right now about what we have to do, whether it's RFK talking about everyone creating a ripple that becomes a wave that pushes back oppression or whether it's John Lewis saying, you know, freedom is not some enchanted garden where we rest. It's continuous action. They're literally saying to us right now what we have to be doing. So I always am finding inspiration. And again, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, those stories and that history. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that and always continuing to bring it back to history, right? So that we are not continuing to make and replicate the same harms that have already happened. But if you have intrigued folks and inspired folks and riled folks up like you have me, where can folks get in touch with you, find your books, sort of understand the work that you're doing? Sure. So the easiest way, but I warn you, you're going to get a lot with this, is if you follow me at David Pepper on Twitter. I do occasional whiteboards, probably two or three a week, which often get shared a lot, where in two minutes I go through something that's happening, whether it be voter suppression or the gerrymandering disaster in Ohio. So David Pepper at Twitter is by far the best. You know, I have a website, davidpepper.com, with all my books. 
my most recent book is called Laboratories of Autocracy. So this is the, my nonfiction self-speaking. It's about how we have to fight back against attacks on democracy and states. There's a website, laboratoriesofautocracy.com. And then you can also follow me at Facebook as well. I think David Pepper's there. I do a few other things on YouTube, but the Twitter site is the best in terms of, you know, if you're interested in both the fiction and the nonfiction, the fight for democracy, that's where you'll get, again, a full fusillade of me nonstop. In some ways, some moments a little less calm than I've been over the last 30 minutes with you guys. So, but if you're interested in all this, I cover it all pretty well there. Absolutely. So if you want to add a little pepper to your life, that's where you're going to find them. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks for what you're doing. Of course, of course. For more on the topic, please check out our blog at thecampaignworkshop.com. And if you want to hear more of these, be sure to like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Martin Diego Garcia, breaking down how to win a campaign. How to Win a Campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Elizabeth Rowe, Dina Castillo, Amanda Ellis, Porobi Saha, and Anna Cruxen. Music by Danielle Pinto. Audio editing by Christopher Lang. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.